Hello and welcome to the Aged Care Enrichment or ACE podcast brought to you by Silver Adventures. Every fortnight we invite aged care industry experts, thought leaders and passionate individuals to share their knowledge and experience with us as we examine ways to improve the quality of care and the quality of life for seniors. I'm your host, Ash Neef, and on today's episode, we're talking to author and longtime dementia advocate, Christine Bryden, about her life with dementia and her work as one of Australia's first dementia advocates. Christine was diagnosed in 1995 at the age of 46 with early onset dementia, and her life transformed immediately as she left her job and focused on restructuring her life and raising her three daughters. In the following 25 years, she's been incredibly outspoken on her life with dementia, including writing five books about her experiences. And we talk about her first book, Who Will I Be When I Die, quite a bit throughout this interview. As you'll hear, Christine is really passionate about addressing some misconceptions of dementia, and she talks a lot about the changes that she'd like to see in the way that people with dementia are viewed. So without further ado, here is our interview with Christine Brighton. Well, thank you very much, Christine, for joining us on the show today. Let's begin with our first question. Uh, In 1995, you were diagnosed with early onset dementia. Can you give us a bit of background as to what your life was like before diagnosis and the diagnosis period? I was absolutely frenetic. I can't describe it any more than that. I just seemed to be driving girls to school and home in the dark and getting massive migraines and just working so, so very hard. Just really, really working hard as a science advisor to the Prime Minister, Prime Ministers Hawke and then Keating. Just a massive amount of work. Um, And I was getting all these migraines, so I went to my doctor and in the end um, the doctor suggested, oh, you know, a headache diary, various tablets, that didn't work. So in the end, she sent me for some brain scans. And it was then that the brain scans showed that I had a lot less brain than I was meant to have. For someone of that age, I'd have to calculate what I was, 46, I think. And um, so then she sent me straight away urgently to a neurologist and I went and he did further tests and diagnosed me as having early onset dementia. And he just kept on reviewing me every few months and then every year, and it was still the same. And he, he tracked me as slowly declining. But at the beginning, it was really scary because he thought I might decline really fast and not be able to write by the end of the year. So this was May, just diagnosis. And so it was Basically, I just kept on getting told just to go home and get your affairs in order, which is just awful because my youngest was nine, I think, yeah, and my eldest had just gone to uni as 19. So, yeah, it was really alarming. And we just moved house. That's how I remember too. So I'd just taken out a mortgage. So, oh, just heaps of things uh, were worrying me at that stage. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And the amount of change that happened in such a, a short notice, it sounds like moving house and then you stopped work around that time as well, didn't you? Yeah, moved house on the Friday, final diagnosis on the Monday, told immediately to stop me at work immediately. So I stopped work on the Thursday 
um, yeah, it was yeah, just huge. Um, and I still had migraines, but they've slowly eased. I still get them when I get stressed. Yeah. So around that time as well, like quite early into your journey with dementia, you started speaking up about your experience with dementia, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Why was that important? Well, getting diagnosed was a relief for me, but it's not always a relief. A lot of people uh, feel uh, the stigma. Um, You know, if you say you've got dementia, it's just terrible. And I just felt that there were so many misunderstandings, misapprehensions, not just people didn't understand and weren't prepared to ask. Um, No one was speaking up for us at all. It was like we'd become the silent people, you know, just locked away. And yet from diagnosis to the final stages, it's a huge journey. Most of the time it can be 10 years or more. And Yes, it was the assumption made that the minute you get diagnosed, you're at the end of the journey. So I wanted to speak up about that and to get people feeling more encouraged, to give people getting diagnosed more hope. Absolutely. And it's been 25 years since that diagnosis and since you started speaking up. What's the journey in dementia advocacy for you? What's that been like? Well, what I started down here is it's just been exhausting. <laughs> But worthwhile, really worthwhile. I mean, now it was very isolating at the beginning because nobody was speaking up. A few people overseas, but not many, none here. And but now, after ten years, others have joined in, and lo- lovely, they've said to me that I inspired them to join in because they weren't prepared to speak up because it felt the stigma of dementia was just too big. So it's been rewarding, but totally exhausting. And it's, I've really wanted to step back now because of exhaustion. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've probably done enough in 25 years. That's, that's a really long time to be involved in anything, but advocacy is it's terrific work. Do you think that there's been progress made in, in dementia advocacy and people's awareness of it? Well, certainly progress in advocacy. There are more people advocating now. Awareness, I feel like we keep on sliding back 20 years again and the same issues keep coming up and I think, oh, why is that? Why can't we move ahead? I mean, we've probably, you know, it's probably three steps forward and two steps back. When you say that um, the same issues keep coming up, which issues are they that keep recurring? Oh, that idea that people with dementia are really odd and can't be spoken to or about in their presence. and. Yeah, just that we're all really odd um, and that dementia means the minute you get diagnosed, you're all drooling and, you know, in a wheelchair. It's not true. It's not mm. true at all. What does dementia mean to you, Christine? Well, it, it's odd. I mean, really, it means for me I've been I'm much, much slower than I was and I forget lots of stuff. Um, the doctor says, well, yeah, you'd expect that. I'm much slower to process things and I find it difficult to think and speak. And the memory is ridiculous. I mean, I turn to Paul, my husband, to say something. I open my mouth and I feel like a fish because it's gone. The thoughts are gone. 
or I try desperately to type it into iCal as my memory jogger, and it's gone. So it's annoying. Um, I should should be more upset maybe, but I'm not. So yes, it it most of the time it feels overwhelming and defeating and embarrassing. But then a lot of the time I just forget I've got it. I just paddle along as normal because it's a slow decline. I it's normality now. Mm. It's become normality. But if I'd suddenly changed from where I was to now, it's a huge difference. What are some what are some strategies that you've developed for making things a bit easier as your journey progresses? I try and take restful days. I space out things I'm meant to be doing along the week so that I'm not trying to do too much at once. And I use iCal for that. I was trying to use notes and then I forgot where they were. So I use iCal to parcel out my days mm. and, you know, to remember things. Like if you were to ask me what did you do yesterday or last week, I'd say just hold on and I'd look at my iCal to look at what I did do because I can't remember. Or what you're going to do tomorrow and think, I don't know, just let me look and check. So, yeah, those are the strategies because I don't know where I am in time and where it goes and what's happening and, yeah. So it sounds like you found a way with iCal to to use technology to remind you. To write it down, yeah. And with books, not to worry about it because I like reading. Mm. I can't remember what I'm reading and who it's by or where I am, but it's okay. What's good about Kindle? I read books on Kindle. I was like, oh, I think I'll read that. What can I type in this thing? And Kindle says it's already in your library. You bought this book, you know, last year or last week. Or, oh, dear, you know, no memory at all. The good thing about Kindle as well is that it remembers your place, right? Yes, it does. And you can search. So I often search and think, Oh gosh, and I can put their name in and it'll go back through the book and show me what they did. Mm. I like that. I so I find it reading a real book harder because I can't do that. And when I find a word, I can't remember what it was. You know, you push on it and it tells you what it means. I think uh, I remember from another interview you said that um, you would keep uh, some notes on the books that you were reading. Is that something that you still do or does Kindle allow you to shortcut that? Kindle allows me to shortcut that. If I'm reading a real book, I have to write notes because yeah. I can't remember who's who um, and what they've done. So I write that in a piece of paper and use it as a bookmark. Wow. Well, speaking of books, uh, in the last 25 years, years, you've written five books. That's impressive by anyone's standards. So is writing something that's become more or less difficult over the years for you? Much, much more. Yeah, much, much more. And I have to, you know, if I'm looking up stuff, I really do have to type loads and loads of notes so that I will remember what it is I want to write. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. I can't believe I've written. And, you know, if you were to ask what were the titles, I wouldn't know them all. Mm -hmm. It's it's difficult, you know, silly. Do you feel like the the thrill that you got from, or the, the feeling that you got from writing your first book, Who Will I Be When I Die, do you feel like you're getting a similar feeling from from writing books now or recently? No, actually, no, probably not. It's a good question. I don't think so. They're just books. Hmm. I can't believe that the first book's still in print. Hmm. 
Even in Japan? Yeah, I, I actually got your first book um, in research for this interview. Um, and yeah, I got it on the Kindle as well. So it's definitely still available. Something that you wrote in the start of that book is that it, it was largely for your daughters. And I imagine the, the place that you were in at the time that you wrote that is quite a different place to where you're at now. Yes, it was. Because when I wrote that, it was expectation that I might be not able to write within, you know, six months to a couple of years because the diagnosis said that I would decline rapidly and then go into a nursing home within about five years and be dead within three. So there must have come a point where you started to seriously question the the prognosis that you were given there. Yes, and then I'd also compared notes with other people who'd been diagnosed and we'd all been given the same Hmm. prognosis. So we're challenging that now. One of my books is more for my daughters and that's the memoir um, before I say, yeah, that's, yeah. In uh, Back in your first book, um, you, there's a quote that you wrote that I find um, really interesting. In your first book, Who Will I Be When I Die? You wrote that as you progress in your journey with dementia, despite any reduced functioning, that you will be, quote, perhaps even more yourself than you have ever been. What did you mean by that? Well, I see dementia as a journey inwards towards your inward self, inner self. And I talked about masks. I can't remember which book, maybe the next one, but you lose your outer mask of, you know, what you do, where you live, you know, that cognitive sense of who you are, and then you go inwards towards an emotional self and then finally to your inner spiritual self. And that's where I think dementia can be seen as a journey, inwards towards the spirit, spirit the true Mm. And and I guess throughout all of this, you still feel like um, you retain some sense of the same identity. Yeah, I still feel like me. Yeah. Does that feel like a, a misconception about dementia? Definitely, definitely. And I think in my last, latest book, and again, I can't remember the actual title, but I do say I will still be me no matter what stage. Even dying, I will still be me. Mm. What other misconceptions do you think need to be addressed in the way that people conceive of dementia? Well, this idea that um, it's just losing things. I think we gain ourselves. I mean, we might lose the busy outsideness, but then you've got more time to be truly your inner self. Mm. So that's. And then I don't want people to think of it as something weird. It's a disease like any other. There used to be the big C of cancer, and now it's the big D of dementia. I want to get rid of that as well because it's a hidden illness for most of the journey, but it's an illness. It's not something weird and odd. Um, So people need to just treat us like normal human beings. Well, let's let's change tack a little bit here. In in your your journey with dementia advocacy, you've seen quite a few aged care facilities, right? Here and in Japan and Europe as well, I believe. Yeah. Do you think people are treated in a way that is befitting to to somebody journeying with dementia? Yeah, I've seen it in Japan, not so much here. 
in some of them, in a few, in the smaller ones where there's lots of staff, because people with dementia need one-on-one connection, not just physical care. They need a real people connection. They need staff who have time to listen and to engage, not just fuss about whether we're dressed and fed. Um, and we need a quiet environment. Quite many of these homes seem to have TV and radio and clattering and banging, and I would find that really hard to be in that sort of environment. Mm. Why do you think the, there's less emphasis on one-on-one connections in, in some homes? Money. Not enough money to put proper staffing levels in. Yeah, what we need is more staff, and then staff that are willing to treat people with dementia as human beings, as real people. Do you think not just more staff but more regular staff, people who you can build a rapport with and that know your story? Very much so. And I don't want pit staff talking over my head at their other people. I want them to be connecting with me. So, yes, very much people who know your story. Now, I've been to facilities in country towns and that's where there's been, it's been positive. People know your story. And in Japan, as I said, so, yeah, it's having that respect for a person with dementia. A few years ago, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you and Paul were looking at some some yeah. different uh, facilities, some aged care facilities. Can you talk a little bit about what you were looking for when you were going around? Well, really that sort of not so much what the um, building looks like or the furniture or what have you, but um, the staff. How did the staff treat people? That's the, um, It's a bit depressing now. Because I haven't found anywhere yet, so we'll wait and see. Yeah. Are you still actively searching? Not yet. Going to pick that up again um, in a while. Do you think? And then write something for our daughters to and son to sort of follow up on. Do you think that you'll you'll know it when you see it, the right place? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's I'll know it when I see it, and as yet I haven't seen it. Not here. In Japan, there was one place. Yeah. And I don't speak Japanese, so. <laughs> but you have spoken about there being um, some level of connection. You don't really need to speak the language if you can feel that someone's with you, right? Very true, very true, because I've always felt really connected in Japan, one-on-one, mm. spirit to spirit. And I think it's because you've lost that cognitive outer mask. So you are reliant on the emotional and spiritual self. Do you think that you're more aware in some ways? more aware of emotions or environments or, or much more i was very uptight i think when i was at work and not a people person at all um and just totally task oriented and yeah i think i've become probably a lot nicer <laughs> since getting the image <laughs> why do you say nicer well because i'm more people people oriented yeah. and task oriented um yeah What kind of things do you spend your time on these days? Well, connecting more to people and to nature, taking the dogs for walks, 
reading the Kindle books that now I might have read before. <laughs> More time FaceTime grandchildren because obviously can't meet physically at the moment. It seems like the writings of yours that I've read and, and through you speaking interviews, it seems like you've maintained a good sense of humour and humility through this through your journey. Would you agree? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah without the humour you'd be a bit sad. Now, um, Christine, you've spoken about the idea of prompts when helping people with dementia or caring for people with dementia, the idea of having things around the room or around them that remind them of certain things. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, I've seen facilities where the room has got lovely pictures of family, things that were obviously important to the person, like quilts or whatever, and we need to be in an a personalised environment. So, yes, personalised environment is very important, as well as prompts when people are connecting with us. It's no good, though, correcting us and saying, oh, no, so-and-so is dead for years, or I know that's your daughter, not your wife, because all of that can be very upsetting. We can't help if we've forgotten things. Also, when we're struggling to speak, it's up, but it's good to prompt a little bit so that I might be waving my hands about and trying to come up with a word, but just help with that word with a question mark at the end of it so that I can say, yes, that's the word. So I feel in charge of what I'm saying. Yeah, I I can imagine it would be frustrating to feel sometimes that you can't say what you want to say and then someone just takes over for you. Absolutely. And I've seen that happen so many times with caregivers just doing that. And then the person says, oh, well, I'm going to give up talking because it's all too hard anyway. And nobody's encouraging me. I think people with dementia need a lot of encouragement, a lot of hope, a lot of help, Mm. supportive help, um, encouraging help. Um, pats on the back about how wonderful they're doing because another thing is the struggle is huge and yet, you know, it's like struggling around with one leg or one arm because you've got half a brain and people need to realise that it's a really big struggle and to um, say we're doing really well considering. Does your your husband Paul provide that encouragement to you? Yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Can that be as simple as just recognising when, when you've worked hard for something and it's come out or what sort of situations do you think you respond to praise well for? It's just little. I don't have praise so much. It's just encouragement and, you know, great and don't, you know, take a restful day and do you've done really so much yesterday. and mm. You know, it's not so much praise as recognition that it takes a lot of effort just to live. Mm. When you're engaged in a task that feels quite difficult, what does the difficulty feel like? Say it's struggling to remember something or struggling to focus on something. What does that feel like exactly? Well, it does feel embarrassing because you think, gosh, you know, I'm meant to be quite bright. I just can't do it. So it does feel totally overwhelming and defeating and trying to remember something that I was about to say or about to write, and it's gone. That is so annoying, Mm. so frustrating. 
just can't describe how frustrating that is. But Paul's very good at soothing me. He says, look, you know, when you do remember whatever it was you were going to say, it'll be feel like a new thought. Mm. So it's okay. Just go with it. It's okay. As in it, it was. And then I might remember a day later and it does feel like a new thought. What do you mean a new thought exactly? What do you mean by that? Well, I'm trying to say something to Paul and I've forgotten what it is. But the next day when I try and say it and I remember it, I say it, but I don't realise it's the forgotten thought from yesterday. Oh, okay, okay. So it's just a, it's a new point to you, but but Paul may have heard part of it before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But he never says, and he never says, oh, you told me that earlier, because that's really embarrassing because I'm thinking, oh, you're right. Is it frustrating to be reminded that you said something before? Very. Not just frustrating, really upsetting because it's pointing out your deficit. It's a bit like saying, oh, well, you, you've, well, I'm just trying, I can't think of an equivalent with another illness. Anyway. I could see it feeling maybe a little bit pointless to point it out as well. Like why, why would you bring that up kind of situation? Yeah, I know. What good is it? To whom is it a benefit? It sounds like in general, Christine, that your life doesn't seem to be based around dementia in the way that a lot of people would assume someone with dementia's life is. Exactly. And that's really important. Dementia is only a small part of life. It's an illness. So if I had some other illness, can't think of one, I'm not curable, going to be with me forever, like diabetes or something. I wouldn't want to be reminded of it all all, all the time. So I want to just live as best I can while I can and not dwell on this dementia thing. Try and set it aside to the best way. It's not easy, but yeah. No, but it sounds and like with your coping... I'd like to say to people being diagnosed, it's not the end of life. It's a, it's a new life in the slow lane of dementia. You'll, you'll change, but it's not all bad. Mm. There's something else that you said that I really like, which is that dementia is a change in the way you experience and relate to the world. Yes, and you do, um, very much so. I can't put my finger on it exactly. Um, you appreciate the world more. Um, you're not in charge of the world like you once were. And you have to give up things and try and be happy, comfortable with that. Mm. Absolutely. That sounds like, again, a lot of humility and, and self-acceptance is required to kind of thrive in this environment. And I think that caregivers can help us do that. Mm-hmm. How so? What do they do? Oh, by encouraging us and helping us and in supporting us to feel more positive about life. What ideas about dementia would you like to see change, Christine? Well, that it is a hidden illness, like other hidden illnesses, um, that there are medications that can slow the progress of the symptoms. Um, it's about all I can think of at the moment. In the future, how do you think you would like to see people with dementia treated differently? Well, just definitely like normal human beings. It's not a lot to ask. But what I see is people with human with dementia treated as physical objects of care, 
not as human beings worthy of relating to. That, I think, is tragic. It's not a lot to ask. So both family caregivers and professional caregivers relate to people with dementia as fully human, worthy of respect and honour and recognition as people. That really isn't a lot to ask. You're right. That, that sounds like the bare minimum to ask. Yeah. But it isn't what happens. And to take away also that um, preconceived idea of what dementia is and isn't. Because mm. I've had people come to help me who then take one look at me and say, oh, you don't look as if you've got dementia. And that, I think, is outrageous. How do they think a person with dementia is meant to look? So, you know, take away all preconceived notions and say all people could, you know, have dementia and look as, you know, all appearances, people of all appearances could have dementia. So, yes, don't make any preconceived assumptions. Absolutely, yeah. I think we're we're almost out of time, Christine. We'll just have a few more questions. Um, you, you touched on something before that I wanted to return to. Um, there is a lot of focus on, on what people lose to dementia. Can you speak a little bit more about what you've gained through your journey? Well, I suppose I gained a lot of friends and contacts through who also have people have also have dementia and in the Alzheimer's movement, all of that. That's like on one level, I gained a whole new relationship with friends in Japan, but then also in me, I've gained a whole new idea of what it means to be a person. It sounds odd, doesn't it, with dementia, but yeah. What, what sort of things are you, do you identify as, as more important in being a person now than, than previously? That, that inner self, who my inner self is. Um, yeah, that journey to the inner self um, and having time to just be. Previously, I never had time to just be. Wow. I imagine rushing around all the time and, and now you can just sit a bit more. Yeah. Do you have any any advice that you give to people who've been newly diagnosed or anybody who has been diagnosed? Yeah, have hope. You know, don't. Is treatment for symptoms. Have a lot of hope. Don't despair. Um, we're not. We're all different. We're all different. Our journey is different. But live the best you can while you can, um, and just enjoy every moment of the day. And try and make every moment of the day one of well-being, because then by the end of the day you'll feel good. Um, it's a journey and enjoy it. A journey in the slow lane. Enjoy it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Christine. I think we've, we've gotten through quite a lot of questions here. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? I've made notes here and it's all done and my brain's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website at www.silveradventures.com.au. That's S-I-L-V-R Adventures. And of course, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out on the next one. My name's Ashton Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.